Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series, Reasons to Believe, today. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 4, verses 16 to 26, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Abandoning Our Sin. Augustine once said that sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try to fulfill it without God. Let me say that again so that we can digest it. Sin comes when we take a natural longing and then attempt to fulfill that longing without God. And if you think about what he said, you'll know that it's true. We have a desire to feel something, pleasure, let's say. There are numerous ways to fulfill pleasure in God and in obedience to God, but we might fulfill that longing through illicit sex without God. Or we have a desire for justice and we might call out to God for it, or we might try to fulfill it through revenge. Now, I can think of numerous examples, but you do get the idea. Now, we've been studying John chapter 4. It's a remarkable incident. Jesus is, in this account, engaged in a lengthy private conversation with a Samaritan woman in a town called Sychar, probably not far from Mount Gerizim. It's about high noon. Sun is high in the sky. It's in the heat of the day. Women would have come to the well to draw water towards evening when the day had turned a bit cool, but this woman comes to draw water at that time. Immediately, we have to assume she's an outcast. She's, she's all alone. Immediately, we should get a sense of her. She's not well-received in her community. And furthermore, her community is the Samaritan community, looked down upon by the Jews. But Jesus has engaged her in conversation, something that would have been astonishing in that day. Indeed, the woman is astonished. How is it, she asks, that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, a woman of Samaria? And to that, Jesus shocks her further. If only you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Well, this conversation is becoming astonishing very quickly. And in no time, as we saw yesterday, she says, sir, give me this living water. Now, of course, she, she's not sure what she's asking for, but she has a deep need for exactly something that's like what's being offered. She has a longing and she wants it to be satisfied. See, I think the desire for satisfaction and for contentment, for happiness, is what motivates and drives every person. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal has said that those who go to war and those who refuse and stay home are motivated by the same thing. They both want to be happy. They want contentment. Those who commit suicide are saying they can't live without contentment. Those who sleep around are trying to find happiness and satisfaction. Those who sell their souls for money want to be happy. Others seek it in religion. But the desire to be happy and at peace is a universal human search. Our souls are telling us that, that something is desperately wrong. That's, that's why all of us complain, and that's why we keep on trying to find what's missing. And Jesus was saying, I'm able to give you such inner contentment that you'll be content forever. And she responds by saying, well, I want that. Now, so far, so let's keep reading. I'm reading John 4, 16 to 26. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, before we go any further, please take note of Jesus' approach. He does not begin by telling her she's a sinner, but she is. He doesn't tell her she's unworthy of this living water, this inner transformation of the soul that would give her the life of God, but she is unworthy. But instead, Jesus wants to enter deeply into her life. And so he touches her deepest center of dissatisfaction, that place where her needs are most acute, and that place in her in which she sought to satisfy her longings apart from God. Very gently, he says, call your husband. This must have affected her deeply. And she immediately responds, I I have no husband. And Jesus could have left it there, but it would have been unloving to do so. But he has asked her about her husband because it's here, in this place of her greatest hurt and failure and deepest longings, that he wishes to engage her. And so he tells her he knows she has no husband. She's been through five of them, and now she's living outside of wedlock with another man. He knows. And just so we're clear on this matter, most Jewish rabbis permitted divorce and remarriage. But most rabbis also thought that if you've been through three marriages, you're done. It's highly inappropriate to carry on. And furthermore, no one, either in the Jewish or the Samaritan religious world, would have allowed for living together outside of marriage. I mean, that idea was condemned everywhere, in all the writings of the Old Testament and in all the religious teachers. But rather than skirt the issue, he zeroes in on it. You're right, you have no husband. You've had five, and now you're living common law. Well, she says, I can see you're a prophet, for what other stranger to our village would know about me? And then rather than dealing with the subject of her greatest failures, she asks him a theological question. You know, if you were with me yesterday, I addressed that issue. The Samaritans believed that the place of worship was on Mount Gerizim. It was the ancient site where the blessings of the law had once been spoken by Israel as they entered the Promised Land. And because the Samaritans rejected the greater part of the Old Testament, they did not believe that the temple in Jerusalem had been designated by God as the the proper place for worship. Well, there it is. Since you're a prophet, who's right, Jews or the Samaritans? Now, you might think, well, now, this is an evasion of the conversation if there ever was one. I mean, after all, they were talking about the relational disasters in her life, and now she wants to talk about the theological differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. Well, have you ever noticed how much easier it is to talk about theology or philosophy than it is to come to terms with our deepest pains and our failures and our sins? This might be the explanation of her comments. Perhaps she's trying to change the subject, but, but perhaps she's not. Perhaps she wants to know whether she can trust Jesus. Look, she's quite aware that between her people and the Jewish people, well, to put it mildly, (laughs) they saw things differently. They had competing truth claims about what God had said and about what God wants. 
Both Jews and Samaritans read Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, but they came to very different conclusions when they read that text. You see, Deuteronomy 12, verse 5 says, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. So, what was the place that God had chosen as his place of worship? The Samaritans said it was Mount Gerizim. They said it was the very first place that that Abraham had built an altar when he entered the promised land. In other words, it was the very first place where he had worshiped in this land. And besides, it was the mountain of blessing. It was the place where Moses had the tribes of Israel stand when they proclaimed the blessings of the law. But the Jews pointed to the rest of the Bible. I mean, they noted, for instance, 2 Samuel and the promise that God would make Jerusalem his resting place. And so there it was. And this, where is the place of worship that made her think that the man who knew about her painful and sinful past needed to answer some questions? Would he also condemn her people? You know, by the time he had finished speaking to her, just how much of a failure would he make her out to be? And it's for this reason that, that I don't think the question of where to worship was changing the subject at all. And if we think about it, most of us can identify with exactly this. When truth is spoken into our lives, all of us have to consider just how much this truth is going to affect every single area of our lives. You know, for instance, you know, over my years of ministry, I've often met many people who, upon converting to Christ, have been thrown out of their families. Some of them were thrown out because they were members of another religion and their families were angry, and others because they came from families in which everyone was a hardened atheist. And so for them, the question of Christ was not just, will you believe? It was really a question of whether Christ would care for them. And was there a loving Christian community for them after they had lost everything else? And I think this woman, who's reduced to the margins of her society already, is asking Jesus whether he's going to take away the very little that she has left. Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will be celebrating its fifth anniversary in 2019. One way we'll be celebrating is by inviting you to join us for the Laugh Again fifth anniversary Caribbean cruise. From February 3rd to the 10th, we guarantee a week of laughter, fellowship, spiritual refreshment, music, and so much more upon one of Royal Caribbean's newest incredible ships, the Oasis of the Seas. Is it a time for a family vacation, a getaway with friends, or a time to simply kick back? Enjoy all the sights and sounds of the Caribbean and allow your heart and soul to be ministered to. Well, join Phil Calloway and friends this coming February 3rd to the 10th, 2019, for a vacation of a lifetime. Laugh again, truth, bringing laughter to life. For more information, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or check out laughagain.ca. You know, some time ago, a man explained to me what would happen to him if he as a Muslim were to embrace Christ. He said his family would never see him again. His country of origin would never allow him back. All of that is a matter of counting the cost. See, I think this woman at the well is doing exactly that. She's asking Jesus where he's coming from. 
Tell me what you believe so that I might know what this encounter could potentially cost me. See, I find Jesus' answer to this woman's searching question, well, it's a kind of order to it. He's going to tell her two things. First, he's going to tell her that the theology of the Samaritans is wrong. And secondly, he's going to tell her that she now stands at the threshold of a new era in which the place of worship will not be an issue anymore. And for that reason, when answering her question, Jesus starts with a with the second half of the equation. The hour is coming, he says, when neither Mount Gerizim nor Jerusalem, neither one of them will be the center of worship. You know, it's hard for me to read this passage and not reflect on the fact that when John writes the book of John, that is, when it's written in the 90s AD, Jerusalem has already been destroyed and the temple is in ruins. And that's not to say that John is not recounting a real historical dialogue between Jesus and this woman. No, no. This conversation is real. It's a real historical conversation. But now that John recounts it, he knows just how significant this conversation has become. See, when Jesus says the hour is coming, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father, it's all come true. Indeed, we know from history that the Samaritans as a people suffered horribly during what has been called the War of the Jews. In AD 70, when the Romans burnt the temple in Jerusalem to the ground, killed so many of the Jews, and and drove the Jewish people from their homeland, the Samaritans were also affected. You know, for some reason, the Samaritans had supported the Jews in their war with Rome, and the Romans responded with brutality. The Romans killed almost 12,000 Samaritans on Mount Gerizim and also destroyed their place of worship. And then much later, long after John the Apostle was gone, in, in the 5th century, the Christian emperor Zeno forced the Samaritans off their mountain and built a Christian church in place of their temple. And all of that to say that, speaking historically, Jesus was right in saying that this Samaritan woman was standing at the precipice of great historical changes that would make the question of Jerusalem versus Mount Gerizim a really irrelevant question indeed. But of course, Jesus is doing much more than than pointing out that history is going to change. History was about to change because he, Jesus, the great prophet, has arrived. Believe me, he says to the woman, hour is here when both sites, Jerusalem and Gerizim, are going to be bypassed. Well, he has her attention. But then, when he comes to verse 22, he adds, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. And then further, salvation is of the Jews. I want to stop at that statement because it's been argued by some that the Gospel of John is an anti-Semitic book. Listen, that's not the case. Jesus is recorded here in John as being adamant on this matter. Salvation is of the Jews. He means, of course, that the story of God's revelation to the world came through the Jewish people. Paul followed Jesus' lead, and he makes the same point, writing in Romans 9, 4-5, where he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's a theological truth. Salvation is of the Jews. It's it's crucial if we are to understand Jesus at all. The real Jesus, and I mean to distinguish the real Jesus from all the fake Jesuses of our day. The real Jesus of history was an entirely Jewish Jesus. 
He accepted the 39 books of the Old Testament as sacred scripture. He believed that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. He believed that when Joshua conquered the promised land, that he had done so at the command of God. Jesus believed that David was Israel's anointed king. He believed that God had set Jerusalem aside as the place of worship. Jesus believed in a real Adam and Eve. He believed that sin came into the world through one man. He believed that Abraham was the conduit of blessing to the whole world. He believed that Isaac was the child of promise and that the blessings came through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus believed that Judah, one of Jacob's sons, would inherit the kingdom, a kingdom that would eventually cover the earth. And Jesus believed that he himself had inherited both that throne and that promise. The reason I say all of that is that the woman is asking Jesus what kind of Bible she should trust in. It's not a minor matter. Some people claim a different holy book than the Bible. Some add books to the Bible that others take some away. If you want eternal life, he says, you better come to terms with understanding the theological questions that are rooted in the Bible. You know, for us, questions like, is there such a thing as hell? Is it okay to live with someone outside of marriage? How about homosexuality? What's the true identity of Christ? I mean, these questions should not be dismissed by saying, well, you know, just come to Christ. We're going to deal with all of that later. See, the great problem is that too many people have come to Christ and still have not encountered truth. Jesus was not like the proverbial used car salesman who tells you whatever you want to hear without dealing with the tough stuff. A genuine encounter is not afraid to deal with the truth of God, even when it's hard to hear. I remember having a conversation with a police officer some time ago. He explained to me that he was on the tactical weapons team. He was the designated sharpshooter should there be a hostage-taking incident. And he said, you know, if I give my life to Christ, can I keep doing this? I said, listen, let's you and I read the scripture together and let's answer that. You know, I remember some time ago, I was leading a home Bible study group, and a woman asked me that if she came to Christ, could she go on living with her boyfriend? And I said, well, no, you can't. And her boyfriend was right there, and I still remember this gal looked at him and said, okay, that's it, we're through. (laughs) Having stated that salvation is of the Jews, Jesus has something to add. Look again at verses 23 to 24. But the hour is coming. And it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. See, Jesus wants this woman to know that a new day is coming. Finally and ultimately, the question will never be Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. It will be about spirit and truth. Notice the phrase, true worshipers. That phrase is the distinction between false and true worshipers. How do true worshipers worship? And the answer, in spirit and truth. In spirit is in relation to God, who is himself spirit. It means that God is invisible, and therefore idolatry is false worship. It means that God is divine and not an extension of human reasoning. It means that God can't be confined to one location but that his presence fills heaven and earth, and there is not one place where he is not present. To worship God in spirit is to worship him as he truly is. And to worship him in truth is to worship him in the way that he has chosen to reveal himself. We submit to him, for he tells the truth and is himself the truth. 
We don't worship our ideas about God. We worship God as he has disclosed himself to us. Hence, says Jesus, this is the choice before you. Will you be a true worshiper? <laughs> you can almost imagine this now. Her mind is, is reeling. And she finally says, look, I don't know, but I do know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he's going to explain all of this stuff. And then profoundly, Jesus says, well, I am that Messiah. I'm here right now, and I'm revealing to you all of that stuff. And with this, she now stands at the same point of decision where Nicodemus stood in the previous chapter. Will she abandon her sin and trust in Jesus? Will she accept his offer and become a true worshiper? It would mean that she will have to confront the truth of her five husbands and her common-law relationship. She's going to have to confront the truth of her own misguided views of salvation. She's going to have to abandon her life and her sin, and she's going to throw herself and entrust herself into the hands of Jesus. Now, that's always the question. Can she do that? But listen, it's our question as well because that's how Christ approaches us. Will you abandon all of your own ideas and will you accept mine? Will you allow me to be the Lord of your life or will you reject that? But if you allowed me to be Lord, I offer you something. It's called eternal life. It's called living water. It's called the new birth. I'll transform you. I'll forgive you. What an offer. What an offer that Christ continues to give us today. John, I got to ask you a question because you might be shocked by this, but I don't think I can remember all my sins. Is it incumbent upon me to confess everything that I've done wrong? Yeah, you know what? Not only do you not remember your sins, but you'd be surprised how many times you thought you weren't sinning and that you actually were. So there's that on top of everything else. Um, of course, we can't remember all of our sins. That's the grace of God. I think what we need to do, however, is I think we need to confess our known sins to God. Those ones that uh, we become aware are sins. Like We don't always know, but at times we become aware of them. And so wherever we become aware, we say, Lord, I abandon that for the sake of the glory of God. This is incumbent upon us when we come to Christ, but it's incumbent upon us at every moment in time as a believer to say, Lord, whenever you make me aware of something that's displeasing to you, uh, show me my ways and I will abandon them. Thanks, John. Great insight. Join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Great news. Our international ministry efforts in partnership with Back to the Bible India are making a great inroads. Now the broadcast out of India can be heard not only throughout the majority of that country, but now with our new radio partnership into the countries of Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and parts of Iran, to name a few. And recently, we've been blessed to hear from listeners in Pakistan, Kenya, and Tanzania. In 2018, our budget for maintaining this great ministry partnership will be $75,000. This includes the broadcast of the program on air and online, impacting all these countries with the gospel, as well as conducting two more pastor and church leader Bible training conferences in June. 
Please continue to support our international efforts. So much can be accomplished with your prayers and support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca.